I'm here with my good buddy, Brian London. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. you got an incredible event coming up. We'll talk about that in a bit. But you are an expert in the gold space. And uh, we talk about gold quite a bit on this channel. Uh, maybe a different view from most, but I'd love to start off by getting your overall macro take on gold and gold miners heading into what could be a recession. Yeah, thanks, George. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and thanks for having me on today. Yeah, I think gold has, uh, well, first off, it's been declining over the past week or so, which is kind of right counter to my forecast and predictions. I, uh, a few weeks before that, was boldly claiming that gold had bottomed for the summer. looks like it's putting in a double bottom. But the larger thing that, that I've been proposing is that the markets are starting to price in the very essential fact that this rate hike cycle is essentially peaked. You okay. know, we'd have another quarter point ahead of us, uh, a little bit more. We might have higher for longer if the Fed gets its way. But it the next big thing is going to be the downside of the interest rate cycle. And for whatever reason, we really don't know. We can speculate. We can play probabilities and possibilities. Nobody knows what's going to do it, but we know that something's going to happen, either a recession, which seems pretty apparent, but a very steep recession, or something else breaking in the financial system as we transition from the easiest monetary policy in human history to one of the harshest tightening cycles ever seen. Something's going to break probably a few things. Uh, so we don't know what it is, but we do know, and the markets, I think, are starting to price in the fact that the Fed's next big thing is to start cutting rates in reaction to something. In gold right now uh, and other you know, monetary uh, aggregates like silver and, and the mining stocks and, and Bitcoin, uh, they're, they're where you are going to want to be going into whatever lies ahead. How does gold usually react just before a recession, though? I, I saw a chart, I think Jesse Felder, Put it up the other day on on Twitter. Really cool. What they did is they went back to 1973, and which they could have gone back farther. I wish they would have, but they just went back to 1973 and they analyzed every single recession that we've had. But the the starting point was when the central planners say, "Okay, it's official. We had a recession," and then they give you that specific date. Oh, Josh might be pulling it up. Okay, here we go. Um, and so as you know, they always state this in the rearview mirror. It's always like six or nine months later. They say, oh yeah, by the way, a recession started six months ago. But they're using that as a point zero or their middle line right there, that dotted line. And what's really cool is they look at 150 days prior. That's on the far left. And then they go out, let's say 135 days um, after the recession is officially announced, Right. And so if you look at gold and you pretty much look at everything, it goes up until we get to about, you know, like a couple months prior to that recession. Then it goes down slightly. And then uh, once the stuff hits the fan, if you will, uh, it's usually, I think, and I'd like to get your take on this, the government's response, which takes gold to its next wave up, whether it's fiscal, whether it's monetary, I mean, the, the GFC was just a, a, a perfect, perfect example of that. 
And if I'm not mistaken, I think gold goes down, not because the retail investor doesn't want to own it, but these big pools of money, they have to have liquidity. And it's the only, because it is the safe asset, it's the only thing on their balance sheet that has a bid. So they, they got to sell it. And then what, then again, you know, you get the recession, then the monetary and fiscal response, everyone looks at gold as like, wow, now we really got to buy it. And that's what really makes it shoot higher. Is this consistent with what you've seen throughout your career? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, the last two recessions we had were were basically uh, uh, unveiled through liquidity crises, great financial crisis, which did have some warning. But then we had that just dropout when, you know, you couldn't sell. There was nothing to sell for that could get a bid to meet margin calls except gold. Right. Uh, but everything, everything was completely distrusted. Uh, everything dropped in a liquidity vacuum. Same thing happened post-COVID. But then the policy prescription becomes apparent. You know what the Fed is going to do. Uh, and it's going to have to do something much more than it did before. That They did that in the great financial crisis. They did that in COVID. They multiplied everything, all their efforts. So that is what brings the money into gold because investors are looking at those repercussions, what's going to happen with this great liquidity injection. And all of what we're seeing right now is really the end game of a 40 to really 60-year trend of ever easier money, not just easy money, but ever easier money. The response to every little hiccup in the economy is to lower rates. And then when lowering rates uh, wasn't enough, you lowered rates to zero. And then when that wasn't enough, you started injecting monetary adrenaline directly into the veins of the economy and COVID. So we know that, you know, there may be a liquidity crunch. And if you're uh, nimble enough, you may be able to buy gold at really bargain prices for a day or maybe a few hours. But when the policy prescription becomes obvious, when you know that the Fed's about to step in, that's when it's going to start taking off again. Because in the next event, they're going to have to do a whole lot more than they did even post-COVID just to get the same reaction from these uh, you know, these addicted markets. Yeah. Let me go over what I'm doing with my own personal portfolio. I'll, I'll, I'll be a little selfish here with my questions. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then uh, I, I think a lot of people can relate to this and just kind of give me your take on it. So I believe that you should always have a position in gold, always, regardless of the price, because I don't really see it as a way to, to get rich, but I see it as a way to just maintain your wealth. It's like an insurance policy. It's exactly. always how I look at gold. So for me, that's that's like 10% or so. But I think where you make a lot of money, and our good buddy Doug Casey and I think Rick Rule would, would fall into this category, is the is the miners. Yeah. Those are the ones. You know, when gold goes up by, let's say, uh, 20%, you know, the miners correct me if I'm wrong, they go up by 100% or 200%, something like that, maybe the junior miners. And that's where you really make money. So I like holding that 10% position in gold just always and just forgetting about it. And then when I think uh, gold is cheap and I want to express that bet, then what I'll do is look at the other, uh, what I call the speculative side of my portfolio, uh, which just means I think there's good asymmetry, but I'll focus more specifically on the gold miners. And trying to buy them, you know, let's say we do have a recession and we do have a little bit of a dip or something like that. You don't sell or you don't add your gold position, but you maybe 
look for gold miners on the cheap and that's when you ride that next wave which we saw in that chart you know after the monetary and the fiscal it just zooms higher what do you think of that strategy yeah that's exactly what you do when i talk to people who are new to the sector and wondering what to do i, I tell them there are two reasons to buy gold in uh insurance and investment on the insurance end you're insuring against an inevitability it's not something that might happen like your home catching on fire it's something you know is going to you know in three years, five years, the purchasing power of the dollar is going to be significantly less than it is today. It gold guards against that over great periods of time. So you yep. need to have that done. Buy physical metals, put them away, all of them. If you see the macro picture favoring much higher gold prices relative to the dollar and fiat currencies, uh, and you know if you look around you, you, you pretty much, it's easy to come to that conclusion right now then you look for ways to leverage that macro trend. And that's where you get into the investment end of it. Now, these days you can leverage gold. You can do the, the Nugget 2X ETF. You can buy the, the ETFs on margin, et cetera. But the real torque, the real juice comes from these mining stocks that typically dramatically outperform uh, the metals. And that alone is a wide spectrum from majors down to junior exploration. Uh, and you can do that. In in some of these in the junior exploration tend to outperform even if the metals are moving because they're based largely on discovery. What's interesting now is that the mining stocks relative to gold price are about the cheapest they've ever been in recorded history since gold was a freely trading asset. Um, you know, if people ask me, have you ever seen the mining stocks as bombed out as they are now? And I say, yeah. 1999, 2000, that double bottom, uh, it was pretty bad back then. Gold was trading at a bottom at $252 an ounce. Today, we're, th we're within 6 or 7% of an all-time high, yet the mining stocks are really at just absolute rock-bottom prices right now. What, so, is that because their input costs are so high due to inflation and the price of uh, energy? A bit, but not as much as you would think. That that has happened before in 2009 to 2011 after the GFC. The uh, oil went to $140 a barrel, and that really compressed the margins of the miners because it takes a lot of fuel yeah. to keep those big yellow trucks moving. Right now, not so much. They still have pretty healthy margins, although they have compressed a bit. Uh, it's really a matter of too many alternatives out there, and the fact that gold has not uh, establish a clear uptrend. And that's all we need right now to really get this is a consistent uptrend because markets don't care where the price of a commodity is. They care about where it's going. And we have not yet uh, burst through that kind of triple top we've had around 2050, 2060 uh, in ounce. Once that happens, I think you're just going to see an absolute flood into the market and and I think that's very likely to happen this year or early next year. It's not that far off. Wow. Okay. So that's, Josh, keep a note of that. It's definitely something we have to put on the uh, watch list for sure. I've got a model portfolio with my subscription service. So I'm always, whenever I hear an idea, I always tell Josh to write it down so I don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> I need <a> Josh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how does silver compare? I was talking to Kiyosaki the other day. Mm -hmm. I, I, I haven't been following the gold price or excuse me, the silver price much at all because there's so much going on with macro. 
but he said something that it's under 25 right now. And I thought that kind of surprised me. I'm like, wow, it, it seems to me it should be a lot higher than that, even considering the price of gold. Yeah, it has. And actually it's been capped at around $25 in its recent runs and is, you know, a bit below that it's been suffering along with gold. I I tell people if you like gold and you should, then you should love silver because yeah. in a uh, extended bull market for gold, uh, one and which is always a bull market that's based on monetary issues, you know, real concerns about the, the the future purchasing power of fiat currencies. In that kind of environment, silver has always significantly outperformed gold, and I think it will again. So. Um, so you ask then, well, why not just buy all silver and no gold? Uh, that's because I, I don't recommend that. I think you need to have um, positions in both and allocated to both because in the bigger picture, there's a very real likelihood, if not probability, that, that we're going to have a, you know, the so-called great reset when after a successive crises, the central banks create so much fiat currency that it loses any credibility. And in that environment, the only real way you can reestablish credibility would be just to connect those currencies to some standard that acts as a governor on these baser human instincts of really of, of overspending. Um, and that is going to be gold. And I don't know that if we come to that great reset point that the, the powers that be are going to throw silver into that mix. I think it's a near certainty that they're going to include gold as a, a prominent uh, part of that mix, if not the only uh, element in that mix. Uh, but I don't know that they're going to throw silver in it either. And in, and one of the reasons is because silver has industrial usages. If you're going to attach it, currencies to a standard, then you, in the case of gold, you're going to have to multiply its price by about four or five times over. Gold's the only commodity, the only element out there that you can multiply its price four or five times over and not upset any industry in the world. I mean, jewelers could cope by just, you know, debasing the the carrot uh, fineness of their jewelry um, or raising their prices. But other than that, there's no other industry where that would affect prices uh, significantly. So that, that's why, as Kiyosaki says, gold is God's money. It's yeah. ultimate money because it doesn't have any it's not fit for any other real usage in any uh, great quantities. Mm, that's it. I never thought of that dynamic. And is that, do you think, why silver is trading at such a discount? Because of the, maybe silver is predicting a recession due to its uh, discount to gold because of that industrial component. Yeah, that industrial component acts against silver more than it helps it. I think that the vast majority of golds, of not golds, of silver's value today is due to its monetary history, uh, not its industrial usage. If it was based on an industrial value, you know, it may be five or six dollars. The copper or something. Yeah, exactly. More valuable than the copper, but but you know, not quite uh, where it is today. Uh, so the the industrial usage angle on silver is more of a stick to beat it with than anything else. I think. Because um, when there is some kind of a, you know, when there's negative economic news coming out of China, um, you know, or some signs of a recession, then the traders jump on silver unduly, I think, uh, because it doesn't matter that much. You know, the, it doesn't affect the supply demand 
uh, and the demand for silver as an industrial metal is really not that great at this point uh, on the total supply demand uh, dynamic. So, yeah, it, it, it really acts as a drag, I think, overall for silver. Do you think that T-bills being at 5.5% are taking some of that demand away from gold? Yeah, like it is for every asset, you know, competition yeah. for stocks, et cetera. When you can yeah. get those kinds of returns in the supposed world's safest asset. Of course, that's not the real returns, but nothing else is right now. And you have the volatility of stocks, et cetera. So I think that's competing against everything. I think the, a lot of the big money out there that's shifting allocations toward safety or has some portion of their portfolio allocated towards safety. Obviously, treasuries takes a big part of that, if not most of it. Yeah, I think especially for those investors overseas. Yeah. Because, you know, that's one drawback to being an American right now is your expenses are denominated in dollars. For people like me, as an example, where my expenses are denominated in Colombian pesos, yeah, the dollar has been a, a great store of value over right. the last, let's say, two years. Uh, it, it's gone up. It's appreciated against the peso far more than the local inflation rate. And you look at the Japanese yen, you look at what's going on with uh, China, a lot of currencies uh, within the, the, the DXY basket, but also outside. For those investors, <clears throat> excuse me, that they're getting a great return uh, just by holding treasuries because their currency is depreciating, their expenses are denominated in other currency. Uh, so the dollar's going up plus a 5.5% uh, yield. So I think for American investors, they've got to understand that component of it. And unfortunately for them, you know, there's no other asset that, uh, like a treasury bond that they can buy that's uh, where the FX is going in their favor. Yeah, you know, as a great financial guru, Albert Einstein once said, it's all relative. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people look at the strengths of the dollar and they say, you know, look at the dollar index and the dollar is so strong, that's what's driving gold down. I don't think so. I think that the gold doesn't really care where the dollar index goes and dollar and obviously vice versa. I think they're both being driven uh, together in opposite directions by the same stimuli, you know, and that basically being Fed policy. Uh, Fed policy drives everything. It drives other central bank policy. It drives all the markets. You know, everything's fed and driven by those. And um, so if there's any indication that the Fed will have to have tighter money or, or raise rates, then the, the dollar index is going to go up relative to other currencies because it is a relative index. Dollar index is going to go up and gold commensurately is going to go down uh, and vice versa. So, you know, it's it, the important thing for people to remember, I, I believe, is that Again, everything's driven by central bank policy. All these supposed inverse correlations or contracyclical assets, they've, they've all, all those correlations have shifted toward one uh, over time, but most especially since the great financial crisis. Everything is what whispers we're hearing uh, or what, how we're reading the tea leaves towards future Fed policy, and then it bets on that. That's what drives the markets right. So what are your overall views on the dollar? And I want to compartmentalize that because I think people make the mistake of, of just saying, you know, the dollar's going down. Well, okay, against what though? Right. Uh, so you've got to say, okay, is that goods and services in the United States 
Or is that against the Japanese yen? Or is that against you know, XYZ other yeah. currency? So what are your views there around the dollar? And then I think it's a, we need to specify a time frame over the next uh, maybe six months or a year. Yeah, I think it will trend toward weakening because the, the Fed will lead the other central banks on the downside of this rate cycle. Okay. So that's the big bet now. That's why we saw that that uh, initial burst downward to just below 100 recently in the dollar index. It, that was essentially a bet that the Fed was pausing. Uh, and again, a recognition that the next big thing will be the bottom of that rate hike cycle. So over that six months to a year time frame, I, frame, I think the trend will be lower for the dollar index. And lower versus gold, because gold is one of those bets toward easier money and the repercussions thereof. You know, if the Fed has to cut rates before it gets inflation down to 2%, and I don't know that, I don't really am doubtful that it will be able to get very close to 2% over the long term. <clears throat> but if they, they're forced to start lowering rates before they get there, that really is an admission of failure. And uh, and I think gold's to play when you see central banks being unable to manage things like they wish. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices, he specializes in options, Tony Greer, commodity trading, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. My base case is if they have to drop rates quickly, like they did, let's say 2020, or they come out with an emergency meeting and they, yeah, I think back then they said, we're going from 1% down to zero. So let's say they say, you know, the stuff's hitting the fan. So we're going to have to drop from 5.5 down to four and then from four down to three or something like that. I think that is likely an environment where they're not too worried about inflation. I think that's like uh, 2009. Remember, I think it was like Q1 or Q2 of 2009, where we actually had deflation, where, where prices act, not just disinflation, but flat out deflation. And But then, of course, you know, th th you go right back into that next wave where prices go right back up to where they were and continue. Uh, I think they went higher in 2010, 2011. But uh, that's kind of how I would see it playing out is they, they have, because they're dropping, means wow. the environment is disinflationary until you get that next wave, which to your point, because of the diminishing returns, especially on the fiscal side, I think is going to be, have to be much larger even than it was in, in 2020. And that's what takes you that next wave. I see it very similar to the 1940s. Yeah. Um, and, and again, why would they have to drop rates that low? And if it is something that 
that it represents uh, liquidity vacuum and or flight to safety, you could see gold and the dollar index both gain ground at the same time. That, that mm -hmm. the only caveat when they can trade together is when there's a flight to safety. They're, they're both viewed globally as, as state payments. So that could happen. And then again, you know, one of the things we, we, we try to figure out and plot the way forward, but one of the the paths forward that it's hard to to explain or predict is what happens when the Fed just loses control. You know, is and is that possible? You know, can they control rates just by really turning on the printing presses? But what if the market starts to demand higher rates for that? risk profile of treasuries and the U.S. dollar. Um, that's a scenario that can come from, you know, a lot of different ways, a lot of different places. But but what happens there? I think in that kind of a scenario where you have higher market forcing higher rates, you also have demand for gold because it reflects that kind of a crisis of confidence in the financial system. Yeah, that's more my longer term view. Yeah. Uh, because simply because the the 10 years trading at 100 basis points under Fed funds. And, yeah. and that alone tells you there's a hell of a lot of demand for for the entire curve right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, how long that will last, I don't know, because you make a great point. A lot of others, like like our good friend Luke Groman and mm -hmm. Lynn Alden, make the same point that, or long-term, where is this balance sheet capacity going to come from? Uh, especially if they're running these trillion dollar deficits and let's remember every single time they go through a quote-unquote crisis the they they do all of this fiscal but the deficits never ever ever go back down to where they were before they come down but they set kind of that new high water mark you know what i mean yeah they come down but they don't go down back down to where they were before they're much much higher so let's just assume after this next um you know crisis if you want to call it that moving into maybe the end of 2024 now, all of a sudden, into 2025, we're running two, $3 trillion deficits. Um, I see how there's plenty of demand right now, and I think that demand can last a lot longer than people think. But you have to wonder, you know, there's not limitless balance sheet capacity. No, no, there isn't. And even the, the, the official deficit is a misnomer, you know, because you can have a trillion-dollar deficit, and then you look at, the the amount over that fiscal year that yeah the debt increased it and all and it increased two trillion like, yeah 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 where did that come from I, I there's off balance on that. yeah yeah there's off balance sheet that's not even included in that and that could be five hundred billion alone right now we're at essentially a run rate uh, maybe not net well definitely not yet but a run rate on a gross basis of uh, about a trillion dollars a year just in interest in the federal debt. Uh, you know, I did a, a presentation at Rick Rolls conference in the end of July, and I took my last presentation and edited it. And I've got a, a slide in there on, you know, that great debt clock uh, where the, the federal debt is. And, yeah. And I had done it four months, that same presentation, or closely to it. I don't give the same presentation every time, but close to it. Anyway, I had that, and I looked at it four months earlier. The debt, the federal debt was a full trillion dollars lower than it was from April to July. It, it gained a trillion dollars in the federal debt. Um, you know, we had, they were talking about a one and a half trillion dollar deficit 
for, I believe that was the number for, for, uh, predicted for this fiscal year. Halfway through the fiscal year, they're at 1.1. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're talking about close to $2 trillion deficit for this fiscal year, close to a billion dollars, I mean, a trillion dollars in interest on the federal debt, plus another four or $500 billion in off-balance sheet expenses. So we could be, you know, two and a half, three or more trillion dollars added to the federal debt this year. Yeah. You know, when I try to play devil's advocate with myself, Brian, I go back and I look at uh, the end of 2019, and I just did a video on this, so I, I think these numbers are correct, but I don't have a chart in front of me. The the debt, the national debt, has increased by ten, right around $10 trillion just since COVID. If you, have, if you would have told me, because you know, I think it's like 32, 33 right now, and in 2019 is about 23. Now, not, not, not the debt to GDP, but this the outstanding nominal debt. So if you would have told me that they would increase by $10 trillion over the next three years, I, I would say the same thing. I would be wondering where that balance sheet capacity comes from. Now, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. This is just always the, the, the internal debate that I have in my own mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I'm trying to say, okay, what's going to happen? Well, here's an argument for this. Here's an argument for that. And then I look at Japan, and then you know most of the balance sheet capacity there came from their central bank, which you would think the release valve would be the yen and to a degree it was but not to the extent which you would have assumed yeah i mean, that's always the debate that i have going on in my own mind yeah what is japan why is japan yeah and then and i've never know. found a good answer to that frankly um but you know as far as the, the the balance sheet capacity you know one of the rough measures i used for years was that for every eight-year term of a president or eight-year term terms of even if it's two four-year terms two different presidents the federal debt has doubled so when trump came in and i said well you know trump serves eight years it seems crazy i think this may be where the the trend breaks down but but when at the end of that eight-year term the federal debt could be forty trillion dollars, and yeah. it just seems stupid to say at the time. We're on track for that right now. We really are. Combining the four years of Trump and the four years of Biden, we're at thirty-six and change right now, um, and there's some time left. So, uh, in Biden doesn't seem, and the, the administration doesn't seem to be restrained in any way. So, yeah, at what point does it just become? so stupid so silly so incredible that you know people start to say well we're going to have even the general public realizes what you and i and your listeners realize that every few years uh we're getting these big crises and they just throw money out there and money gets cheap as hell and when that gets anchored in the public consciousness the broad public consciousness they're going to start saying well number one spend like there's no tomorrow. Take on as much debt as you can and try to protect yourself. But we are not going to give the dollar or any other fiat currency any respect. Um, when that happens, things get out of control. And that's when I think the end game happens, that, that reset where they have to instantly regain credibility somehow. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of uh, 
one of the first interviews I did with Luke Groman. And this was when I first started doing interviews back in uh, 2020. And I, I don't remember when it was in 2020, but I remember the Fed's balance sheet was right around like four and a half trillion, something like that. And he and I were, were talking and we were saying this jokingly. We were like, oh yeah, man, the, the Fed's balance sheet could go to 10 trillion. <laughs> like, you know, that that's just, that's so outrageous, but we'll just go ahead and throw it out there. And sure enough, you know, the Fed's balance sheet gets up to, to, to 9 trillion. So we were, we were off by a whopping uh, trillion, but, you know, who knows where it goes in the future. They get there pretty soon. But, you know, it's kind of an example, looking again at the bigger picture, that none of this crap is normal. You know, you, yeah. you, the talking heads on CNBC and the like, and they start talking about, you know, will the Fed do this, and the interest rates at zero, and negative yielding sovereign debt. Um, you know, money just deposited by keystroke into people's accounts. If you would have gone on, gone on CNBC, you know, in 2007 or early 2008, predicted any of this stuff, yeah, they would have put the tinfoil hat on you and hauled you off state, like they did for Peter Schiffer actually saying that. <laughs> but you know, they they would have just labeled you an absolute lunatic. And now we're talking about it like it's, you know, situation normal. Um, but it isn't. It, none of this is the way it should happen. And, and if you look at it from that standpoint, you have to realize that this is a trend. And, you know, we're in the end game. And that doesn't mean it's going to happen in two months, two years. It may take 20 years the way things work. But the water is circling around the drain things seem to be happening more quickly and, uh, and, you know, more substantially, um, it, whatever lies ahead, you just have to get down to foundational principles and asset allocations and, and make sure you're covered for those. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's a great way to think about it is, you know, when you're draining the tub, you can't see the water go down, Yeah. but when it gets to the drain, then you see it happen very, very quickly, then kind of all at once. And then the water's Poof, it, it's gone and that's probably that's a great visual as to why you know it's always good to have some gold uh, and i would even argue physical gold just because I mean, we haven't talked about it but when you throw in like a central bank digital currency uh, i think that's a matter of when not if yeah i think it's it's pretty you know we talked about the the price and where it's going and cheap and expensive and whatnot but i think uh the the best argument for holding holding gold or Bitcoin right now is just to have purchasing power outside of the system. Absolutely, it's it's uh, you know it's freedom, it's independence in in physical form. Uh, and you know history teaches us that. And on central bank digital currencies, I know you share my view, but that's you know that's the four horsemen of the apocalypse coming in. Yeah. That, that is the ultimate trend because government always seeks more power. And that's one of the next big steps. And the only way to prevent that, I think I'm not much for political advocacy or anything, but I think everybody should shout that down from the highest rooftops wherever they can and make that an issue in political debates, et cetera, and, and demand that any representative you have take a position now for or against um, and it, it just has to be stamped out because they are going to try to do it. They are already trying to do it. You know, it's getting out of the light. Um, 
and, and setting the stage for it. But that's the most dangerous thing I can see. Yeah, the most frightening thing I see. Yeah, you know, when I first started my channel, Brian, back in 2019, I remember every single time I talked about a central bank digital currency, people would call me a tinfoil hatter. Uh, yeah. They know oh, your conspiracy theory. Oh, George, you're going too far. Oh, you're becoming Alex Jones. Unsubscribe. You know, they do yeah. that. And then, you know, here we are two or three years later, and it's just part of the mainstream. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, CBDC. Of course, we're going to have one of those. Like they say, we need some new conspiracy theories, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because that, I was just going to say that I saw it on Twitter. Some guy said, I need some new conspiracy theories because all the old ones have already come true. Right. Yeah. It seems like that's happening more and more uh, and, and a lot faster as well. That That's like part of that same drain example that you gave. It's like, you know, especially since 2020 and, 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 and COVID, my goodness gracious, all the conspiracies that you had back then pretty much have, have come true, whether it was lab leak or, uh, you know, anything else. And um, it, it's, the one, probably my biggest concern moving into 2024 is, and I'm, I'm convinced of this. I think this is some, I know there are no certainties. There are only probabilities, but I think this is one thing you can say with almost a hundred percent certainty. And that's the authoritarians and the central planners, the politicians are never going to let a crisis go to waste. Never. No, they're not. That's their opening. That's their opportunity. Yeah, so that when I look at the inversion of the curve right now or all these other metrics that you look at that are just screaming recession, that's kind of where my mind goes. It's, yes, we need to worry about the economy, the unemployment rate, et cetera, protecting our, our portfolios, but we need to also think about this through the lens of how are the central planners going to try to leverage this? Yeah, and that's one of the great lessons of, of COVID, you know, in the past emergencies, as you say. But I think particularly in COVID, it really exposed a lot of wannabe tyrants. Yeah, yep. You know, and and as Doug Casey says, you know, we didn't see that. Uh, COVID was a great example of censorship, in other words. But like Doug Casey famously said, he's all in favor of hate speech. Yeah. <laughs> you want to know who was thinking, you know, hate speechy things, you know, who were the yeah. people who were saying that. And let let these people self-identify. Um, and of course, the other issue is anybody can label anything hate speech. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I I can't remember. I think I was in Mexico City, and I was down there with Doug. Yeah, and uh, he he went into that spiel on why he thinks hate speech is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> old Doug, poke you know, and be the antagonist. Yeah. And yeah, he kind of speaks really slowly and he pauses. He's like, I love hate speech. Yeah. So he goes, now and then people just need to know that you hate them. And that's good. <laughs> and you know, it's everyone in the crowd. They don't know where to laugh. They don't know whether he's serious. Or it's just it's just quintessential classic Doug Casey. Yeah, Doug, every year when he'd get off the stage at my conference, he'd come backstage and ask, how do you think that did? Well, Doug, I think half the people love you and half the people hate you. And he would just say, great, right on the mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So, Brian, when's the next conference, buddy? When can we uh, look forward to that? Who's going to be speaking and kind of what what's going on? November 1st through the 4th. 
And uh, it's, I have to say, George, you'll appreciate it, but it's the best lineup I think we've ever had. This will be our 49th year. And, you know, we, we don't have the huge, we don't have a Margaret Thatcher and Ayn Rand. Well, but you got a George Gammon. I mean, come on. I'm supposed to say that, George, by the way. They're just supposed to leave that for me. I was getting right there. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Let's steal your fun for you. The, the bench strength, you know, we live in extraordinary times. Um, I think much like the subversive investment newsletter industry of the 70s and 80s came out to explain those extraordinary times, um, I think we've got people out there like you and some of the people I'll mention in a second who are out there rising to the occasion, uh, being brought out by these extraordinary events and through social media, financial, Twitter, and the like are really some of the, the most dynamic thinkers out there today. You know, I look at everybody I tried to get. I think Luke Groman was the only one who couldn't because he had a conflict. But I, Let me guess, this kid's baseball game. Probably so. It's always, he always tells me to tell. I think, actually, I think that might have been it. I think yeah, yeah. Um, ball ball, I guess. Um, but, you know, we, we have Matt Taibbi, who I think is. Oh, wow. I didn't the know most important journalist of our generation right now, exposing everything going on with the Twitter files, government censorship. Um, and, you know, and he's a diehard liberal, and I think he's just, you know, uh, but more of a classical liberal, I think. Yeah. Else. But but he's just tremendously important. And uh, we're going to showcase him, by the way, on a panel with you. Uh, so you're going to have some fun there, I think. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I, I didn't even realize he was going to be there. Yeah, he's going to be there. And uh, I've got some other people on that panel. I've got, uh, and I'll tell you about them in a minute. Uh, we have Jim Rickards. We have Danielle DiMartino Booth. We have... You, of course, we have a great speaker. I just locked in, Constantin Kissin. Uh, not a lot of people know who this guy is, but I don't know. He's one of the more important and entertaining at the same time thinkers out there. It's uh, K-I-S-I-N. Uh, go watch the uh, the video he has pinned on his Twitter profile, um, and you'll see why in, uh, I've got him speaking. You're actually going to be on the geopolitical panel with him as well and matt taibbi uh we've got rick rule we've got dominic frisbee we've got brent johnson lynn alden we've got in person this year which that's exciting no uh no insult to you george i complimented you on this before but lynn i think is the best out there i think she's the smartest person completely agree um and uh and dave collum who's always at food uh, Peter Bookfar, James Stack, Peter Schiff, Jim Arurio. Oh, going to be there? I'm sorry? Schiff is going to be there this year? Yeah, we got Schiff back. Oh, good. He had some uh, conflicts in the last couple of years, so Peter's going to be back. Uh, Jim Arurio was kind of, I, I guess he got off CNBC uh, by mutual agreement. And uh, Tabby Costa, who's brilliant, just signed up James Lavish. Uh, I don't know if you know who he is, but he does an extraordinary job of explaining complex subjects uh, in macroeconomics. I've been comparing him to you, by the way, so I think you'd really like to uh, look into what he's doing. Um, the real estate guys, Adrian Day, Adam Tagger, a bunch of the top uh, names in the mining industry, 
uh, newsletter writers, and really just dozens and more. It goes on and on. Um, but it 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 is, you know, one of the, I think this is the best lineup we have and you know how it is, you know, at, at this event and uh, and how our speakers mingle with the crowd and everything. It's just the yeah, environment to be in. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, you've got all my buddies. All my buddies are going. <laughs> it's going to be like a party. <laughs> yeah. So where can people get tickets, Brian? Uh, www.neworleansconference.com. Neworleansconference.com. All right, Brian. Well, I appreciate your insights, buddy. It's good to talk to a gold guy, kind of clear my head on some of those ideas, and I can't wait to see you in November. Me too, George. We uh, I look forward to seeing you. We are going to give you lots of stage time, and I know you've got more standing ovations in your future here. So, <laughs> all right. Have a good one, buddy. Thanks.